are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. In this podcast, I interview scientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today, I had a great discussion with Dr. Randy McIntosh. Dr. McIntosh has been a scientist at the Rotman Research Institute of Baycrest Center at the University of Toronto since 1994. And since the start of 2022, is the new director of the Simon Fraser University Institute for Neuroscience and Neurotechnology in Burnaby, British Columbia, just outside of Vancouver. Randy obtained his PhD in 1992 from the University of Texas at Austin in psychology and neuroscience, and did a postdoc at the NIH with Barry Horowitz until 1994. His group uses neuroimaging and computational modeling to understand the dynamics of healthy brains, as well as those from many different clinical populations, lending insight and providing potential biomarkers through comparing his dynamic brain models with empirical data. He's also part of an international consortium called the Virtual Brain, which is an open science neuroinformatics platform for modeling the brain. Along with the exciting news of Randy's new position, he also just published a two-part book called A Complex Journey, which is a sci-fi novel that delves into the complexity of the brain. In this discussion, we talk about his research and specifically about this ambitious yet increasingly impactful project involving the virtual brain. We also delve into the different kinds of brain modeling approaches and what these different models provide. Lastly, we talk about his new position as well as the Institute's unique goals of more effectively translating neuroscience to all-inclusive clinical care for individuals. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, Randy, thanks for uh, joining us for this podcast. And uh, I really appreciate you spending the time to talk. And, you know, we already had the introductions. And overall, I mean, I think that your impact on the field, you know, I've always been aware of sort of what you've been doing. And, and I've sort of finally have delved into it deeply in the, in the preparation for the podcast, but it's been, it's truly impressive. So why don't we just get started with just very quickly, some of your background and, you know, what inspired you? So, so what first inspired you to research the brain? So, uh, I mean, I've been interested in science as far back as I can remember, um, honestly. And uh, I know it sounds kind of corny, but I, as far as I can remember, even or at least remember childhood, I was always interested in doing science of some sort. <clears throat> I got interested in psychology actually in high school. Um, they had an elective course in my senior year um, that was basically psychology. And I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. So we went through sort of, you know, the overall theories of cognitive function and so on. Um, but the motivation for the brain actually came in my first year in university with a class taught by Rob Sutherland at University of Lethbridge. At that point, Rob was a junior faculty at University of Lethbridge, and he was uh, given the honor of teaching uh, intro psychology to undergrads. Um, <laughs> and of course, Rob being a neuroscientist, um, you know, he had a, a focus in terms of how he presented the course. And his course really focused a lot on the biological determinants of, of psychological processes. And I was just blown away by that. I said, wow, we can do this. Um, and then 
the second course was actually from Ian Wishaw, um, who uh, you know is well known as well uh, in sort of behavior neuroscience, but also from his work in neuropsychology. And you know the course with with Ian Wishaw was just blew me away. It's like I this is what I want to do for for science, and that kind of just opened up the the watershed, and I just kind of stuck with it, and ended up moving to Calgary, et cetera, et cetera, and then the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, and and so your your PhD was in psychology and neuroscience, um, but now yeah. what you're doing though is is you know it's sort of like uh, you know it's very deeply modeling, and so yeah. to to you probably learned that along the way, but but how did you decide to you know get more into the modeling aspect and uh, uh, and what skills, you know, what, what did you have to take, you know, extra classes or did you just learn along the way? Sure. I mean, it, it was a bit of both. Um, when I was, um, I can't remember if it was in my undergraduate year or in my in the first couple of years of my master's degree um, in Calgary, but um, we were using a technique called 2 deoxyglucose autoradiography, which you probably know, you know, was kind of like the predecessor for a lot of the neuroimaging that's being done now. Um, and I was doing it in animals. Um, and the one thing that impressed me about the technique compared to like, you know, single unit recording was that I can get the entire brain. Um, and at that point, I was also heavily into anatomy. So I was reading a lot of literature on different systems, auditory system, limbic system, and so on. And I thought, well, this is fantastic because I can actually get, um, measure the entire system. Um, but I can't see how they're working together. Um, yeah. Because I mean, the, the analytic techniques are basically doing like very simple univariate tests. But I says we need to find ways to to try and merge these data. Um, so I started playing around with um, things like you know principal components analysis and um, and actually in my, my one of my first projects uh, in my master's involved using structure equation modeling or path analysis um, on uh, 2DG data um, and the. I was taking some multivariate stats courses as well to learn how to use these techniques. So it was sort of came complementary. Yeah. But I think the, the, the motivation for this was actually there was questions I needed to answer about the brain. And I didn't have the um, uh, armamentarium, if you will, um, from my, my training, formal training. So I ended up having to seek other ways of doing that. And I, I had a lot of really good mentors in, in uh, techniques like structural equation modeling. Um, uh, that were not part of sort of the traditional graduate students courses. So I got a bit of supplementary um, training from that. And the rest of it was just learning by doing really. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually right. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, a lot of people sort of gravitate towards that in some sense. And I almost feel like a lot of the people who do some of the most insightful modeling do start off from the side of neuroscience and they just want to make sense of the data. And so they learn along the way uh, as opposed to, you know, people who start out as computer scientists, certainly there's a lot of good modeling done with mm -hmm. that. But it seems that, uh, yeah, there's less of maybe a, a desire to, to really get into the neuroscience with, with the modeling in some sense. So starting from the neuroscience and learning the technical side is, uh, yeah, I think it's a great, obviously, combination. Yeah, it's tough because, I mean, the, the, the challenge with a psychology degree is that the maths that are underlying, especially the modeling we're doing now, you don't get that uh, in psychology degrees. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. a it's a formidable hill to climb, but I could have good collaborators that can tell me what I'm going going astray. So. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, well, that's and that's right. I mean, as fields become more interdisciplinary, anyway, you have to. It's expected that you're sort of supplementing your knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. you know along the way. So you had yeah, for sure. So your advisor um, for your PhD work was uh, Francisco Gonzalez Lima, and, and and then of course 
you know, I know Barry Horowitz at the NIH and he, and you, you worked with him a little bit there too. Um, yeah. Uh, how was that? Um, so when I first contacted, um, uh, Paco Gonzalez Lima, I was uh, just finishing up my, um, master's degree and I was looking to do a PhD. So in, in the old days, you did a master's and you did a PhD. So, um, so I sent him a letter, uh, actually ha a handwritten letter. I think it was handwritten. I can't write, I can't do handwriting anymore, of course, but, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I sent him the letter and said, look, I, you know, I've been doing 2D, 2DG with my master's advisor. You're doing some great work. You know, are you, are you taking any students? And he just happened to be starting up a lab. So, um, and, you know, having somebody come in the lab who already knew the technique was for him a benefit. So um, when I got down there, um, I was uh, impressed because uh, he had the kind of anatomical knowledge that uh, really sort of pushed um, the envelope because he knew the details of anatomy much better than most people I knew at that point in time because he actually has legacies, goes back to almost a call. So he has that sort of tradition of very detailed anatomical knowledge. Um, and we started just partnering, I think. So I, I went from being a student to a collaborator quite quickly and, and essentially a lab manager with him, really. So he and I worked together in building the lab. Um, you know, um, I was quite involved in, in um, planning our move to UT Austin, which we ended up at, at some point. So I like that um, he, you know, he did provide a good framework for me, but he also allowed me to expand. That's really where the whole structure creation modeling um, went, um, it was really working with him. And that was how he, he supported that because he saw that that was a way to incorporate anatomy into the analysis. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was that. And I think um, you know, Paco also was um, very uh, deliberate about making sure that I was making the right connections, networking, which is important for all of people going through the system is who do you know and how do you make connections? Because it's a big field, a lot of people are busy. So um, uh, he put me in talking to a lot of different people about this thing. Robert Satori is actually one of the first people I talked to about path analysis a long time ago. Um, but uh, it was interesting. I was at my very first Society for Neuroscience meeting in St. Louis. Um, that's where I presented the, the path analysis stuff for the first time. Um, and uh, at that point, Barry was looking at the correlation stuff. So he was asking some of his first papers on doing the co uh, correlations of regions of interest in the brain started. Um, and he was thinking about this technique, this path analysis or something like it. So he came by my poster because I sort of, you know, I, I sent him a note saying he was doing this. He should come by. I think it was also handwritten. Um, <laughs> Pre-email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he come, he should come by and take this look at this. So he came by the poster, he looked at it, and he sort of went through it in great detail and saw about it. So, and then he came back and offered me a postdoc. Um, and his, um, and this is actually interesting because it was a good introduction to the NIH culture, which I'm sure you know very well, <laughs> um, that he thought that rather than competing with me, uh, he would be better for us to collaborate. Um, I think that was one thing that made Barry unique at NIH in some respects that certainly when I was working there, um, the, the environment was extremely competitive. Um, and there were collaborations, but the collaborations were usually done in terms of building little armies um, so that you could, you know, uh, get the resources you needed to push your lab forward. Um, but Barry was extremely open to collaboration. Um, and he also was, you know, he did a fantastic job in making sure that um, I had everything I needed to do the work. Um, we all shared a very tiny office on the 10th floor of the, yeah. 
<laughs> I've seen that office. Building yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should have a plaque on there somewhere because there's like five of us in an office that really should have only one, only one person in it. Um, but anyway, I mean, the point being, I think, is that Barry was very supportive of, of me exploring um, things. And uh, he and I, again, um, both Barry and Paco, um, I felt I was more, uh, I learned from them in terms of their wisdom, but I think we also moved together and we ended up being collaborators again. Uh, and in fact, that was true for both both of those major mentors in my in my early career. Cool. cool. Yeah. No. Barry is. Uh, yeah. I think he just retired a little while ago. And, and yeah. Yeah. No, Barry Fest. Of, I think just before the pandemic. Kind of the year before the pandemic, we had Barry Fest, which is quite a fun thing. Yeah. On NIH campus. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. The NIH. Yeah. The NIH. Uh, uh, not to talk about the NIH too much, but I think it's changed a little bit. I think that, uh, you know, I always wondered about the dynamics that are set up, right? Because everyone has the resources and it's like, there's no mm. motivation to push to collaborate, but I think, you know, we started up core facilities. So people work through that. And Sure. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, the established the neuroimaging, I think um, the, the growth of PET and MRI at NIH, I think sort of, Broke down some of those barriers, and I do I do agree with you. It's much it's a much different place now than it was when when I I was there and when you first got there for sure. I'm sure. Yeah, but it's still unique. It still has its own interesting. Uh, yeah, it is intricacies and dynamics and things like that. But um, yeah, no. Uh, so okay, so you so so you 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 moved to Toronto in 1994, and and yeah. uh, one other. Uh, so then maybe just to to the begin talking about the virtual brain, which uh, uh, you know, uh, you've written many papers on many other things, but, um, but I think that uh, you know, I, it's interesting to see the evolution of the, of the virtual brain and, and now it's, it's a prominent thing. Uh, it seems that you know, your collaboration with uh, Victor Jerza and Petra Ritter, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so how did that, because so now when I see you at meetings, it's always, there is uh, this sort of sense that you're a team, you're this, you're this, you're working closely together. And how did that yeah. start and evolve in that regard? Um, well, so there was this, um, there is this meeting called the Brain Connectivity Workshop, which started uh, almost 20 years ago. Um, uh, the, the, the official first meeting was actually called by Rolf Cotter, who passed away uh, seven or eight years ago, I think it is. Um, and Rolf was a, a very, um, you know, died in wool neuroanatomist as well, but he was the one pushing neuroinformatics. And so he and Carl Friston um, pulled together the first brain connectivity workshop in Dusseldorf. Um, the focus of that meeting was to really talk about the issues around um, uh, how do we understand brain networks? And this is prior to the, the sort of network revolution. So it was an interesting time. Um, so a lot of the recognizable names like in the, in the field, like, you know, Carl, myself, um, uh, Michael Breakspear, Olaf Sporns, Julia Tononi, all those people were sort of part of that group uh, going forward. Yeah. Uh, and the second meeting we had in Cambridge, and that's where I first met Victor. And um, we, <laughs> I gave my presentation and he was probably the most uh, pointed person in terms of asking questions that were kind of like, whoa, where's this coming from? <laughs> um, and really pushing things, which I appreciate it because that was the nature of the meeting. The meeting is actually about discussions about the core concepts in brain connectivity. Um, and I don't think it was at that meeting, but the subsequent one, he and I were chatting about, you know, the, what's, what's missing in this field. And we have all, you know, a lot of really elegant work being done in imaging. Um, that was sort of the beginning of diffusion tensor imaging. FMRI was sort of, you know, pushing the, the field forward. 
Um, and then we had all the, you know, the graph, graph um, uh, modeling techniques. We had some of the effective and structural, effective and functional connectivity measures and so on. They were kind of all floating around. Um, yeah. And Victor and I were sort of sitting in a pub one day and we we're chatting about this um, at the BCW meeting. So, you know, we need something to pull us all together. We need something like a virtual brain. And I was like, oh, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he and I started playing with uh, sort of the primordial version of this where I just gave him a, an adjacency matrix, a structural connectivity matrix. And then he started putting in dynamics. And all of a sudden we had a, you know, a large scale model of um, the primate brain, really not the human brain necessarily, the sort of an archetypal. But that opened up a whole uh, host of opportunities. That happened in parallel with some funding from the McDonald Foundation um, that supported this network called Brain NRG, Brain Network Recovery Group. And that was uh, a massive collaboration involving, you know, Petra was on the team, uh, Carl, Kathy Price, Julio Olaf. Um, there was 1.13 different universities that were all part of this group. And it went on for um, almost 10 years. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, um, set both the theoretical foundation for things like the virtual brain, but also put in the opportunity to build the architecture. Um, and uh, the, the primary people in leading this were Victor and I initially, then Petra was brought on because of her expertise actually in multimodal imaging initially, but also she's great in informatics as well. Um, and uh, it's just expanded from there. And I, I think it's, it's, it's filling a niche that was necessary to fill. And now it's, I think it's become you know, standard workflow in a lot of people's um, uh, packages. And it's becoming part of you know, international um, efforts like the you know, Hemabrain Project, eBrains, yeah. um, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's done what I, I hoped it would do. Um, and it's actually now giving us an opportunity to kind of carry things forward to the next, next level. Yeah. So, so it's just starting from like, yeah, the top down in terms of, you know, I just, what you said just, just triggered a, a question in my mind. So like when you say the standard workflow, um, you know, how do people right now, just before we get into the, the, the nitty gritty of it, um, you know, what is their, you know, right now, like for instance, right, there's other people who do, you know, like, you know, like, you know brace pure and spawns and they have their models, but, but in some sense, what you're doing is, is have a platform for uh, sort of, uh, inserting the, the the elements of things that affect the dynamics and yeah. and then and then so their workflow would be sort of comparing it to their empirical data in some sense or to, with the dynamics or the locations or interactions. So what what would be that like a typical workflow uh, if someone were working with the virtual brain? So uh, to to back up one second and kind of give it a, maybe a, a perspective that could help, um, and then I'll tell you how it integrates. Um, there is a difference between sort of just analytics. I'm saying just analytics because I do the same thing, um, versus trying to build a model of what produced your data, um, and that's sort of the um, uh, the difference between virtual brain and um, uh, other applications is that we're trying to say what what produced these data. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's building in an explicit theory um, that you can actually then see on paper. Um, yeah. And that's a little bit different from, from doing graph modeling and so on. Um, so uh, where, where, the, where you do the analysis and the analysis, the endpoint, um, whether that be you know, looking at you know, community uh, structure or something like that, um, or doing something like PLS and looking at sort of you know, uh, some component space. 
Um, but we're actually trying to generate these data. So that's again, the generative versus discriminative or predictive modeling different differentiation. Okay. So in a TVB workflow, what we might do, for instance, if we're looking at just resting state, you know, we can generate, we can get resting state data almost anywhere now. Um, we can model it. So we get, we get the diffusion data, we get the fMRI, and then look at, um, so what are the critical features that resulted in this particular pattern? Um, and so you can speculate, well, maybe it's just the structure, structural connectivity. So if you put a model that has sort of, you know, vanilla dynamics and put the structural connectivity in it, does that generate um, the, uh, the um, dynamics we see in the, in the empirical data? Kinda. Um, what else do we need? Well, we need time delays. Okay, put time delays in there. Oh, it gets actually much more interesting. Okay, what else do we need? We need noise. So you add noise and all of a sudden you get a model that does it really good. And you can do all the comparisons with you know, appropriate nulls. Um, so it becomes a way of, of an explicit testing of hypotheses about what you think are important features yep. for, those, for generating those data. And that's a differentiation between um, a lot of the other approaches that are, are, are very sophisticated analyses, but the interpretation of whether the critical features for um, generating the data are a lot of times are relegated to discussion sections, uh, whereas yep. in the generative model, that's part of the results. Yeah. Um, so it's a slight, it's a slight but important difference in how um, things like TDB, dynamic causal modeling is in the same line that it's a generative approach, yeah. um, and it's it's that's the the subtle but important differenti differentiation. I hope that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And so. So, right, you might think, oh, so, you know, and, and just like you were talking about time delays, how, how important that is and somehow generating aspects of the noise. And, and even, you know, you had a paper on, on looking at, for instance, uh, entropy uh, in the yeah. signal. Uh, and, and it's still, it's interesting trying to find ways of changing entropy uh, mm. you know, with the virtual brain and seeing if that, you know, it sort of suggests, it doesn't really you know, it's sort of an inverse problem because it could be a lot of things affecting the dynamics in some sense, but um, it suggests potentially certain types of, you know, network, you know, breakdown or whatever uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that might change with aging or Alzheimer's disease or things like that. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's actually, um, no, that's a good, really nice framework for that because I think that, you know, when you talk about brain modeling, um, you know, every, you know, there's, there's all, there's everything from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Carl Friston's free energy, which is not really even a model. It's sort of a construct to, yeah. to, uh, you know, doing, you know, detailed network, uh, you know, like we said, sort of analytics. And then, and then you just sort of talk in the discussion about, about what could be causing this sort of thing. And then there's also, you know, there's also this other realm of, of doing like deep neural networks. And so people sure. develop those and the, and there are, there are questions slightly different. It's not to, understand the dynamics, it's sort of like to say, oh, this is how the brain does the computations. Um, and uh, it would be interesting. I mean, I was thinking about that in some sense and, it, and it's, yeah. that's a different question, but it would be interesting to integrate it somewhere they convert, they should converge someday. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really, um, it's, a, it's a good challenge to have um, because I think what we're, we're running into now is that, um, the um, intersection between the sort of machine learning um, and uh, biophysical based modeling uh, approaches is, is happening. It's bound to happen and has to happen. Um, you know, right, right now, Victor has been using a lot of the ML approaches to help with um, optimization. 
of the biophysical models. Um, but there are other things you can do with it, of course, as you said. I mean, if, if we try and reproduce, for example, the behavior that we see uh, in the memory task, for instance, we have our you know, fMRI data, we have the um, reaction time and accuracy measures, okay, fine. So then we, we're trying to construct a, a you know, multi-layered neural net um, that does the same thing. So what are the critical features in that? Do we need to change to produce a memory deficit, for instance, instead of making assumptions? So it's, it's again, a, it's a nice generative approach, um, but it's doing it at a slightly different level, which I think is an important one. Um, uh, there's a, uh, but it's one that's uh, a, a step away from the biophysical model. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily con conflicting, it actually can be complementary um, because it's a way to integrate um, the cognitive domain that we don't have access to um, other than through some inference like by reaction time and accuracy measures. So the gentleman uh, or colleague gentleman, he's a gentleman, uh, Brandon, Tur Brandon Turner, uh, who's doing some of this work trying to integrate the two different approaches. Um, it's hard, but I think it's, it's the way to go because it allows us again to get that insight in terms of the cognitive processes that we can't really, we can't see. Um, we can see the, uh, the results of, their, of, the, of the calculations, but we can't really measure them uh, explicitly. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, and so right, this is sort of trying to bridge that gap in, in, in some regard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and it, in, in that sense, it is unique. I mean, there is there's there's nothing like you know your construct, and it's sort of you know it's open access. You can download it, you can play with it, and and uh, you know I haven't I haven't seen anything, you know, the, certainly you know the the human brain project at uh, in, in Europe they you know they tried modeling you know individual neurons and looking at dynamics and. Uh, but yeah. this is sort of a different scale and, and it's unique. It's completely unique, I, I think. I think so. I think so. I mean, we, we, we built it to be, to be uh, you know, I would say a service to the community in the sense we're providing a platform for people to use to start testing their ideas. And it's purposefully, um, with one exception, it's model agnostic as well. So it, it allows you to, to use any kind of model you wish to, to, to look at the dynamics, either oscillators or you can put in much more complicated multi-component biophysical models. And that's really up to the user to decide what they think is the most important um, set of dynamics to reproduce what they want to try and reproduce. Um, yeah. And I, that's, I think that's been helpful because people can then use these, they don't have to use virtual brain per se, but they can at least say, oh, we can do this. So they can write their own code to do that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it does, we'll get into some of the clinical applications, but so just look, just to, talk a little bit about some of the uh, architecture of it in some sense. So, um, uh, so as far as the, the basic elements, I mean, you have, you have, uh, you have, so the brain divided up into, into network nodes and it's sort of constrained by DTI data. Um, yeah. uh, and, and so that's so the idea there is that these are the white matter tracks and that's where yeah. uh, at least the highest rate communication or the easiest communication occurs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so do you, uh, you know, some people, you know, it's, it's interesting when people look at networks, they, you know, I, I, one thought about DTI is that I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's, that's certainly that's, that's where the, the super highways, but people always wonder, I think that, you know, when you have functional connectivity, you could actually have, you know, any sort of connectivity, but it's sort of, it's through that in, in that regard. And so that's, and that seems essential to looking at some of the dynamics as they manifest. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, so also, uh, 
like, do you consider, so inhibitory or excitatory, it seems like when you, when you have any oscillators or whatever, you have to consider, you know, some sort of inhibitory feedback. Yeah. 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 That's definitely, um, it's either implicit, uh, in the oscillatory models or explicit in something like, for example, the, um, reduced Wang Wang models in there. It has you know, NMDA channels. It has GABA channels in there. Oh. Um, Stefanescu, Yursa, a lot of those biophysical will have excitatory inhibitory populations. Um, and then tuning parameters for feedback inhibition um, uh, to sort of dampen the, uh, the range at which these um, uh, populations can start spiking essentially. Um, you know, and the, so I said they're implicit or explicit, and you know, depending on which model you use, again, you can make inferences by generating, for example, the currents for inhibition excitation, looking at the timing and the distribution of those, um, and then doing the generative model, forward model, see what does that look like now if I generate generate an EEG signal or a bolt signal from that. Yeah. So it's it, you can bridge scales quite nicely, and Petra's group is leading a lot of work on that. Um, it's working quite well. Um, so. You know, yeah. I was skeptical initially, but um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's actually going in the direction that it needs to go. Yeah, I'm, you know, right. There's a lot of, there, and, and actually, I'm really intrigued by that because, um, yeah, I think that uh, with with bold contrast, for instance, um, you know, a lot of people think it's mostly excitatory, but then, uh, you know, there's some groups suggesting that there's signatures of inhibition. Of course, people thought that the post undershoot that still might be, um, yeah. or even or even habituation, like you know if. Uh, you have a stimulus and then quickly in the visual cortex, it quickly becomes, you know, uh, damped. Uh, and that right. could be some sort of inhibitor. It'd be really interesting to try to tweak that to see if you can mimic, you know, some of the clear, bold habituation effects to then go back to bold and say, oh, this part, you know, is inhibitory. This part is excitatory and maybe, yeah. uh, you know, make some. Yeah, more- I, for sure. For sure. I mean, that, that does require a bit more detailed data as well, because, you know, some of the, t- depending on the, uh, the resolution you're getting from your scanner, um, a lot of those phenomena might not be visible, um, but they can be modeled, certainly. I mean, I, in, in some of Petra's, uh, the first paper we published from Misha Scherner was the first author on that. Um, you know, we were able to reproduce that. It's well-documented, this sort of negative relationship between alpha and the bold signal. Yeah. Um, and when you when you take that alpha signature down to sort of its biophysical core, you see what's driving a lot of the oscillations is this, um, on off between the excitation and inhibition, like fast excitation and then slow inhibition sort of dampens the, the wave and that results in your alpha frequency. And that's what you, you accord is very nicely with, with the, the, uh, the decrease in the bold signal. Well, that's cool. So it's, it's a nice kind of connection. And it's, um, again, I think that's, that's the kind of direction I would like to see the field going more and more because it allows us to get, sort of extricate ourselves from the quicksand around focusing on a single technique and saying that you know this is this is how I think it works, and then going back to either um, your own experimental data or looking at even animal models to see is this actually what happens or not. Yeah, and that's a nice way to frame it, right? It's sort of a it's sort of a sounding board, uh, you know, against with a lot of techniques and you know giving potential you know a little bit deeper insight into into what's happening, and then you go back and better interpret your own data uh, in right. this regard, um, or even better you better use it clinically. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so what would you say? So, so you mentioned, um, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned some in, in some of your papers, the importance of, so, uh, you know, there's two questions I have. One is the idea of, uh, of the right spatial and temporal scale. I mean, certainly the brain is organized across 
many different spatial and temporal scales. And uh, you know, years ago, uh, there were like mean field estimations of of, of what's important. It's sort of like the um, and that's but uh, is there a hope that I mean, is there a worry that that you're at the you know at, at a scale where it's still an inverse problem and you don't really know what's what's causing the, these dynamics or um, or are you at the scale that you think that right you can make headway in understanding the empirical data and you're somewhere in between sort of making some inferences about the mechanisms but I always wonder is you know there's many ways of producing a solution of a dynamic sure. solution uh, ever worried that that it's somehow you're you're missing some temporal scale or even some spatial scale that's either too small or too big or, or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this kind of gets into, there's two aspects to your question. One is um, um, trying to build a model that's sufficient to cover what you think is important. Um, but also the fact that it's, it's this is a, a nonlinear dynamical system um, or that's no, kind of redundant, but dynamical system, um, in which case it is by, by nature um, hard to predict. Um, it has deterministic aspects, which is primarily the structural connectivity, but has a lot of stochastic aspects that you know, are really, really sensitive to initial conditions. Um, and that's okay, because that's the architecture is meant to be that way so we can adapt. Um, so then it becomes more a question of um, you know, what is the minimal data set you need to, to provide some insight about the scale you're trying to, uh, to measure. So, and that's the focus, right? So, and um, none of the models that I can think of that we've done thus far in the TBB family uh, globally, <laughs> um, how we tried to make inferences about molecular aspects like synaptic um, events, their population level um, inferences. And that's because we just don't have the um, detail. Do we need it? For the level that we're looking at, probably not. Um, yeah. Because there's, you know, there's a question of, um, as you said, spatial and temporal scales. Um, some temporal scales um, are probably irrelevant to some other temporal scales. Yeah. So, you know, what happens at a synapse and the quantal release and so on probably has very little impact on the broad dynamics. And conversely, that's also true in the other direction. Yeah. But there might be, you know, uh, then you know uh, enslavement that happens to use some of Herman Hawkins' ideas that you have sort of slow timescales that actually change the the faster dynamics, and that's what we're interested in looking at is does that interplay? Um, and there we try and look at you know can we have enough information between scales to look at fast and slow um, interactions? So the fast population dynamics, the slower network dynamics, and look at their interactions. Um, and you can expand the model, certainly, um, uh, to include more detail. Um, part of it becomes a question of um, uh, model identifiability, which is a huge problem here, um, but also computational aspects. Uh, so as you make the, the model more veridical, um, it becomes a, a huge computational challenge. And yeah. even with you know, the, the GPU systems they have in our system here, and, uh, BC and the system that Victor uses in ULIC, uh, it could take you know several weeks to get to optimize your model. <laughs> and that's just for one subject. Never mind, you know, a population of six or seven hundred. So um, there is sort of pragmatic aspects as well. But it's really a question: is is the model you come up with in the, the day useful? Does it actually guide you in terms of uh, ideas about the brain? 
Um, and then, you know, at some point you have to think about application. I think um, Victor's group um, and their work on epilepsy is a really good example of taking the focus on a particular scale and saying, this is actually gonna be useful for clinical um, intervention. And so they've now been able to put together a model called the epileptor that's now part of a, a national clinical trial in France um, for doing pre-surgical mapping and it's working quite well. So it's, it's evidence that, you know, th these models are helpful uh, beyond, you know, just knowing about the brain that actually be helpful in a practical sense as well. So is it a, is it a way, so just to jump to that really quickly, um, uh, and I don't know, I didn't, I haven't read, read up on it, but is it a way of, I mean, certainly with epilepsy, you know, you, you, people have tried to use bold contrast just to look for unique uh, correlations that are at the focal point. Uh, people have, you know, EEG can kind of from the inverse, you know, trying to yeah. do some sort of calculation, you can sort of localize, but this does it better. It, uh, it, it somehow uh, by, by trying to model the entire thing. And then, so it's a better inverse a better local in, in that sense, or uh... yeah, it's looking for you know what, what is the what are the likely um, what is or are the likely sites for this, the seizure fo focus? Yeah, um, and what are, what's the propagation zone look like? Okay, so you can work through the model fitting, and then get you know Bayesian evidence estimations for which are the likely sources for for the seizure focus, and then take that back to the clinician because they're ultimately responsible, obviously. Um, yeah. And they can say, ah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and it's, it's provided, um, uh, you know, agreement with what the neurologist says, but also sometimes they find surprising results. It says, well, that's an interesting observation. And they find that TDB usually is providing them with pretty good um, guidance in terms of what decisions they have to make. Huh. And that's even better than, uh, for instance, even, I mean, let's say you have a person having seizures in, with an MEG, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I've always felt like fMRI had more potential for localizing uh, seizure foci, but it's just, uh, you know, it's hard to get the, the particular population. You have to yeah. have, them have seizures in the scanner and, yeah. <laughs> or there's some yeah. clinical seizures, but, um, right. but this is, so this actually looks at just ongoing resting state. It doesn't assume. No, no, sorry. It's using, it's using stereotactic EEG. Okay. Um, it, it does, it does use DTI and sometimes e fMRI bold to, to, to inform as well. So it is trying to merge as much state as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's saying that there's, it, it, the hope is that it will, we'll find out what is the minimum data set you need to acquire to actually get reasonable data because these are, you know, stereotactic EEG, um, it's not as invasive as sort of the intracranial stuff, but it is invasive. Yeah. Um, and if we can do it with, with MEG or MRI, um, that makes the whole enterprise a bit less invasive and um, hopefully more precise ultimately. But um, the idea, and this is just getting back to the original point about why we wanna use the virtual brain is that um, there's probably no single data set right now is gonna give us the answers we need. So let's find out how to identify the critical features in the data so we extract them with, um, more intelligently. So it's not just, you know, amplitude, it might be frequency, it might be other S entropy, for example, yeah. that may be the key features. And we can actually, we can model that and say, this is much, a much better um, indicator of, of, in this case, a clinical um, condition. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. That's actually right. There's a, it's extremely practical and it's, and it gives you concrete results uh, in that regard. Uh, so what would you say, um, uh, just to, I mean, as far as the model is concerned right now, I mean, do you feel like it has any major gaps in terms of, you know, what you, you would like to add to it? 
uh, in the future or? Yeah, I mean, I, we talked about the, the deep learning um, aspects and the cognitive models. I mean, we've been quite successful in looking at resting state activity um, in terms of what, what the model suggests. And it does suggest that there's a really strong architectural uh, determinism that result that pr pr produces these resting state dynamics. Um, what we're missing is really the, the linkage to, to um, function in, cognitive, in the sense of cognitive and behavioral function. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think is an important next step because we, we have now, again, the architecture to do a bit more detailed examination. I mean, we could, and we are, look, look at um, resting state models where we look at the various levels of the biophysical parameters and their relationship to like neuropsych measures and so on, like in the human connectome project and so on. Yeah. But um, what I think we'd like to do is look at, you know, can we measure ongoing cognitive function, uh, getting back to the example of Brandon's uh, Turner's work and look at how the dynamics at that moment actually um, sculpt the emergence of the cognitive function that, that emerges from that. Yes. Um, I think that'd be fantastic if we could do that. And that's really something that I'm very excited about doing. But it requires a bit of a bit more of um, you know thinking about how do we intersect the biophysical models with the cognitive models, and that's where people like Brandon are going to be quite important at pushing that. Yeah, and and it might be linked, but um, but another paper that you have uh, recently is in terms of looking at low dimensional manifolds. So right. uh, you know our behavior are. Is, is sort of low dimensional. And so you're trying to, if I understand it correctly, you're trying to, you, know, you have these incredibly complex dynamics, but you're trying to find yeah. uh, this low dimensional space of that, that somehow relates in some interesting way to the behavior. Uh, is that? Yeah, it's exactly in line with that. And this is, this is something that, you know, again, Victor was, uh, you know, he came up with the idea um, deriving from some of the work in synergistics that Herman Hawken had pushed forward. Um, by the way, I'm just going to do a quick, uh, if you want to see a fantastic talk, um, go onto YouTube and search for Herman Hawken and, and look up his talk he gave about a year ago um, uh, on, uh, on, a, on a video conference where he did uh, a history of synergetics, but he did it on handwritten pages that he walked through. Huh. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful talk. What's his name again? Herman, Herman? Herman Hawken, H-A-K-E-N. K-E-N. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Herman Hawken on YouTube and uh, all right, uh, history yeah, of synergy. It's, it's, and I think the, the important thing about his approach is that he, you know, he's seen the evolution of, of the, the dynamical systems approaches to like, he just developed this idea of the synergetics. Scott Kelso worked with him on that and Victor, of course. Um, but it's actually linked to things like free energy and so on. So all these other ideas of, um, you know, maximum entry principle from, from, uh, I forgot the guy's name. Anyway, um, they're all derived from all these all these different principles, and they're all talking about you know the, the exploration of manifolds in a, a dynamical framework. And the manifold approach, um, in and of itself, it, it, you know, the mathematical part of it is is um, one thing, and people can explain it that way. Another way of thinking about it is you, if you can find um, the boundaries or the rules that constrain the dynamics of a system. Um, that gives you more ability to get better insight in how that system behaves. Um, not so much being um, perfectly accurate in predicting it, but at least constraining the probability. So you can think about the manifold as actually putting the boundaries on the distribution 
yeah. of the possible configurations that a system can take. And that's going to be obviously across space and time. Um, the nice thing about that framework is it, it allows you then to link up scales as well. Yeah. Okay. So we can then talk about going between, as I said, the, the biophysical and the behavioral scale using things like these um, uh, manifold interactions that can be in principle estimated. Um, but it, it provides you with a way of kind of constraining the problem. So it, it, it goes from being, you know, a, a hopelessly unsolvable inverse solution to something that at least gives you some ability to start integrating or in, in inspecting the system at a level we couldn't do it before. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, right. And it seems like it has hope. I mean, it seems like, right, like for instance, I mean, I don't, I don't uh, like for instance, in resting state, um, you know, the brain, you know, is oscillating between, you know, multiple states and people use ICA to pull out, pull that out yes. in some regard, but, but actually understanding the manifolds and, you know, even trying to understand, you know, the dwell time or the mm-hmm. relative sequence of the states or. Precisely. Know, yeah. You can get yeah. insights that way. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And, and, and that's sort of, you're right. It does constrain it. Like, you know, it's funny. I, I'm, uh, I keep on thinking of, you know, once you look into the dynamics, it, it's sort of like the, the weather in some sense. I mean, we, we understand, you know, we, we have the weather, but we don't have the, you know, and it, there are certain manifolds of the weather, but it's a little bit, that's even more somehow unconstrained because um, mm. uh, uh, than, than in the brain, because you have the structure and-, and uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's 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 interesting um, connection you make there because, you know, the Nobel Prize last year was for you know, work in climate. Um, in which dynamical systems modeling was central to actually uh, making climate models. And that's, you know, essentially the same workflow we're talking about here. Yeah. Is trying to come up with the, the critical features that we can estimate um, and derive the manifolds that constrain these trajectories. Um, and that provides us, again, with the distribution that we can start um, exploring. Yeah. And, and, and then those could be, those themselves could be, could be biomarkers in some regard. Uh, uh, yeah. That are, you know, somehow more sensitive to see the manifolds than to actually just look at the data and try to pool it in some way. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, this, this, is, this is certainly one of my big um, efforts right now is, is to find ways to estimate these manifolds in a way that's, that is useful uh, for characterizing healthy function, but also not in identifying um, trajectories that lead to dysfunction yeah. um, as well. Yeah. Um, and, and on that note, yeah, we can just kind of quickly go into uh, uh, some of the clinical applications. I mean, it seems like, right, you mentioned epilepsy, uh, stroke. I mean, uh, there, there's some listings in your website uh, looking at Alzheimer's disease, aging, even yeah. schizophrenia. Uh, and that, I was intrigued by that because uh, looking at relative, um, you know, in excitatory inhibitory activity and, and mm-hmm. you know, inferring uh, uh, an unbalance of that. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about any of those. I'm, 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 you know. uh, I mean, they're, they're, each one of them is probably a talk in and of yeah, itself. Yeah, but yeah. one of the, the, I think one of the things that's come, coming up, and it's not going to sound terribly surprising until you actually dig deeper into it, is that almost every application we've seen thus far um, does involve a change in the balance of local and global dynamics. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is a general principle of brain function that, um, we need to really start thinking about seriously and embracing. Um, so, you know, we can talk about regional dysfunction and things like amnesia, where we've got maybe hippocampal damage, but the ensuing deficit that arises is not simply because that tissue is gone. It's also because of what happens to the brain afterwards. What does the brain try and do? 
yeah. uh, when this piece of tissue is missing. And that's this balance of local and global dynamics. So in schizophrenia, um, um, in even in epilepsy, and for that matter, stroke and, and dementia, there's a change in local balance, uh, excitation inhibition. Now the timing and so on is different between the diseases is probably differences in terms of the actual um, molecular components. But the manifestation is that there's a change in that balance. And the question then becomes, how does that balance get um, adjusted for from the global dynamics? Can it get adjusted for? Um, if it does, then in theory, you can, you can adapt. If it doesn't, then you've got a cascade effect that might cause um, some clinical manifestation. Could be, you know, delusions and schizophrenia. It could be stroke or sorry, um, seizures that propagate. Um, it could be just a, an inability to integrate information because of degeneration, like an Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Um, because you kept, that balance is no longer maintained. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not saying that that's gonna be a solution for everything, but at least I think gives us a way of, of considering um, what a clinical manifestation means in terms of the brain dynamics that allows us to sort of, sort of balance our focus on region versus versus network. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you say so, so yeah, you can imagine you can imagine generalizing. So the idea, the whole idea of clinical manifestations is sort of like a reduction of your repertoire of behavior, and and that's sort of yeah. Um, uh, you know could be right. So when you say local versus global, it's sort of like local, like specific areas that are lesion versus, uh, uh, you know, that the global, the, the, the local at, uh, activation and the network uh -huh. versus yeah. sort of like how it's connected to how, the, how it's more distally connected to. Other. And what happens to those other, other regions? Because most of these deficits, uh, clinical deficits arise over time. Um, so, you know, schizophrenia is a great example is that there could be things that happen very, very early on in life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, once the, the maturation of the system gets to the point where that dysmorphology or whatever is the underlying cause becomes critical, uh, the network changes its, its, its dynamics. So even though it might be regionally focused, um, it's a network level um, problem. And I would, you know, I, I could hypothesize that many clinical disorders are actually of that ilk. Um, so it's, it's a question, it's again, it becomes a question of, so how do we think about that in terms of how then do we intervene uh, with the patient to try and uh, improve their condition somehow? That's, yeah, that's actually, that's a, a, a great way of, yeah, that's an interesting avenue of thinking about it. Um, it, it brings to mind, I mean, there's, there's a, um, uh, you know, just, in general, there's another researcher that I know uh, who, who studies uh, brain energetics and, and the idea that, you know, as you age, your, uh, your mitochondria become less able to use glucose. And so the whole system is somehow re reduced in terms of their, uh, of, of, uh, metabolism. And, and then mm -hmm. how does that break down? Like if you have a global reduction in metabolism, how does that break yeah. down the network in some unique way? Yeah. Um, or even how could it be manifest in terms of the entropy or, or, yeah. you know, right. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you think, oh yeah, that's bad, but then yeah, you're giving insight based oh, on your models. Right. For you and I, we just keep on running that way. Our brains stay healthy for. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We both run and, and uh, yeah, I've, I, you know, and, and actually speaking of running, I just, uh, you know, I remember one time running with you at a conference a long time ago in, in Brighton, I think it was. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And Brighton on the beach. Yeah. And, and I know for my, for myself, I mean, that's just an interesting example of, uh, 
know, my, my state, my brain state after running is hugely different um, than before running, especially sure. if I've run in the end of the day or whatever. And, and that's, there's, it'd be wonderful to try to model just that. And it, is it just yeah, simply yeah. increasing the metabolism or is it some hormonal change or, you know, it's, uh, you, you, that would be an interesting, I'm sure you've thought about doing that as well. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, it's, it's a question of getting the appropriate measurements, but certainly that's, I have the same impression that I'm, I'm a different person when I come back from a run. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, yeah. A plug for, for running in terms of, uh, <laughs> yeah. keeping, or even just walking for those who are going to listen to this, because you just any kind of cardiovascular exercise, I think that's probably right now the safest bet for, for maintaining brain health. So, yeah, I, I would hundred percent agree with that, but, uh, and it would be great to even show the, the evidence in, in your, in your network models. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's so many more things we could talk about, uh, clinical applications, but, um, you know, definitely, you know, the, the holy grail of, of, I mean, all of, you know, all these imaging techniques is that we want to find biomarkers and, and, and I really think that, and, and so, yeah, even with fMRI, so we can, you know, there's, you know, certainly interesting insights about the brain, but, um, but, you know, we just don't have the, you know, it's another question. We don't have the reproducibility potentially, or the, yeah. the power to, to pull out individual subjects, but, um, but yeah, it seems potentially, I mean, obviously people are trying, you know, multivariate analysis, but it seems like what you're doing in trying to model this, it, it's, it's a really interesting lever to sort of get at um, uh, maybe increasing the signal to noise in some sense, sort of by, you know, using this model as sort of a lever to sort of see these latent states or to, to, to get at, you know, potentially what's causing individual changes in dynamics. And to, yeah. So it might, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's hope for biomarker generation in that regard. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's it's you know to 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 use sort of a statistical analogy um, uh, by modeling uh, these data uh, and especially modeling with respect to empirical data. It's it's kind of like you're extracting the the most predictive features um, from the data that produce the. Uh, what you think are the important characteristics of brain dynamics. And in doing so, it actually probably eliminates some of the noise in the measuring, measuring device. So it's kind of like doing latent variable modeling where you've, you extract the latent variable and you have measurement error that gets uh, eliminated by the, in, in the course of modeling. We have some suggestion that that's true, like in our application to Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, we, we improved the prediction uh, quite a bit in terms of predicting cognitive status by using the model compared to like just using functional connectivity or structural connectivity. And that, in my my interpretation, was that we're actually extracting the critical aspects from the um, measured uh, signal and then leaving the measurement noise behind. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that's actually that's really that's it's a, I think that's a really important point about about your model as far as that's concerned. You're not. Yeah. There's there's that improvement that you get uh, potentially. Mm. Um, yeah, and and yeah, it's adding insights to understand the brain, but also this very very real clinical. I mean, because the clinical manifestations are all measurable, it's just a matter of putting it all together. Yeah, yeah. And you need that model to put it together. Um, yeah, just you know, we can go on for so long, but I, I but I think I realize the time is starting to run short for. Um, but it, so um, just to just to sort of uh, start to wrap up a little bit here. Um, uh, uh, to talk a little bit about the the future of brain modeling. So, I mean, okay. certainly, uh, just very quickly, uh, uh, where do you see where do you see it going? And and um, 
are we, do you think that it's just a matter of uh, getting all the parts together and, you know, understanding, you know, uh, the details, uh, making more and more measures, more precise measures, or is it, do you think we're missing something fundamental uh, uh, in terms of how it's being put together, some sort of principles that we can derive that to help us increase our understanding? Um, That's a tough one. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to predict the future in this, yeah. in this game. Yeah, I'm sure especially breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, I you know, you know, thinking about the, you know, what would have happened if we didn't have optogenetics, for example, in neuroscience, what would be, it would have been any different than where we are right now. I, hard, I don't know. Um, I think a lot of, and I'm going to sound very, you know, dated in this case, like an old, old curmudgeon, but, um, you know, we get, we get fascinated with, uh, with uh, the measure, the, the techniques uh, and forget about what the question is a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it, it is worthwhile thinking about, should we, I don't want to pause the technology, but it's actually a question of, of thinking about what have we learned thus far um, and what has provided us with that insight. Um, so the technology is no question that we've learned new stuff and fMRI certainly pushed, I think, uh, pushed us in new directions that would not have happened otherwise. Um, and we're now going back to looking at other techniques that are complementary, like EEG. Yeah. Um, which has been around a little while longer, um, but it's providing us a new perspective because of what fMRI is showing us. Um, yeah. So to me, it's actually revisiting the questions. That's probably the most important thing right now. Yeah. Uh, and thinking about what have we actually learned um, and then how can we learn more? So I think integrating data sets is going to be a really important um, push. Um, and then from that, um, you know, in the clinical application saying, okay, if we have the luxury of measuring every part of the person's um, body, you know, can we then go and, and make this Uber model that can, includes all of their uh, critical features, including, and this is something we're, all, we're often missing, is their, their psychosocial and social cultural um, context. Yeah. Uh, and from that, start deriving uh, better ind indices of that person. Uh, and where that person sits in this broader distribution of, of you know, for example, brain health. Yeah. Uh, and we think about that in, in a different way now. We think about, okay, so this, this person is, you know, the typical undergraduate at a high school university. Um, you know, their risk factors are quite different than somebody who's, you know, the person who's working in a grocery store, uh, who's the same age and doesn't have the same opportunities. Um, so integrating those factors, I think, is going to be a, ch a change in the way we think about it, because we're not going to get much further along if we just continue to measure the <laughs> undergraduates. We have to think about a broader application and then deriving from that, you know, can we get measures that really matter to that person um, that, that helps them? Yeah. Um, and that's, that requires us, again, to pause for a second and think about what is it we're trying to learn um, and yeah. how can we, we how can we improve that path to learning about ourselves, but learning about others and then actually take that knowledge and put it in the hands of people who really need it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, there is a definitely a push. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Our, our standard pool is graduate students and including a, a much broader spectrum uh, can do nothing but lend more insight into, you know, you, you you know, it all comes down to the individual and there's similarities and differences. And, and yeah. we're just at the very tip of, of trying to understand that, 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 
that interplay between what are the similarities, yeah. what are the differences, what are, uh, you know, what's pathology, what's not. And yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, you know, some of these things just as a, a kind of a, a tangent, I mean, the, measuring what matters beyond the brain, I think is something that we as neuroscientists don't really have a good handle on. Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, working with the, the people who are in the social aspects, um, talking to the, you know, the, the philosophers, for example, who think about these things a lot, talking to people who are the, are the clinicians in the front lines, even talking to the people who are affected, like going to the advocacy groups and developmental disorders, going to the Alzheimer's associations and saying, well, you know, what is the critical thing? I said, well, it's not so much the memory problem, it's actually the navigation that's the issue or the, or the aggressive behaviors that are the issue. Um, yeah. And this thing, oh, so it's aggressive behaviors that are problems. So can we actually get some insights in terms of what uh, are the um, markers for that? Well, yeah, we can. We actually have this thing called entropy that we can use and measures the, the, the risk of, of um, uh, delusional behavior in people who have Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that, that the dynamics, I think that's going to be important for our field. And it's a huge area that can be explored and very, very ripe uh, for the picking. Yeah. And it seems that it's having, having, right, having, you know, even information on your iPhone or whatever, just having something that, or even things that can track your behavior in that. So you're, you're, you're referring to that in some sense, like looking at the wider context, looking at every aspect of, of, you know, uh, their social interactions, the, um, Right, like you said, they're whether they're aggressive and how does that link yeah. to memory deficits? Deficits, yeah. I mean, getting a handle on that is so hard. Um. Well, this, this, yeah, and, and you know, we we talked about complex systems, Peter, and it is this is a complex system, right? Um, the humans in their environment and their social context is a complex system. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to digress too much from neuroscience, but what we're experiencing now with this COVID pandemic is a great example of how you know, complex system principles have a tremendous effect if you ignore them. Like you know, log growth functions, for example, knowing what a log exponential yes. growth looks like. It's like, what does that mean? No, it's not doing this, it's doing this. All right. So then they go like, oh, <laughs> that's a complex system. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny, we were evolved to, to not really, you know, that doesn't come naturally to us to, to sort of comprehend yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely agree. And there's there's questions beyond the horizon in terms of, you know, complex systems of idea space. You know, why do people, you know, why do people feel strongly about, you know, you know, things like what the, whether they get a vaccination or not versus yeah, yeah, yeah. versus others is certainly it's your peer group, but it's but it's there's it seems like those are dynamics as well that we can maybe potentially get insight into. But uh, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is great. And, and, and hopefully maybe you'll continue to expand beyond the brain and, and integrate this, this model in some sense, uh, the virtual reality, uh, <laughs> along those lines. Okay. So that, that's a, that's a great way to, to, uh, that's, that was a wonderful answer. And I, I totally, I totally agree. And actually it gives me something more to think about in terms of, uh, um, Right, uh, you know, getting a wider broad range of, of subjects, uh, looking at all the things that affect human behavior, um, mm -hmm. more so than just simply and how that feeds in the brain dynamics in that regard. Because it's they all it all it may it it may matter it may not matter, but but certainly there's there's more there that that um, yeah yeah it's worth getting. So you have two you have a very so just to to 
a few more questions. You have a very cre uh, creative side. You, you love music. You also, yes. uh, 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 you've just finished uh, or, or just published two books, two fictional books um, uh, called <laughs> A Complex, well, one book, but two parts, I guess. A Complex Journey, Brain Maze, and then The Next Day. Uh, right. Do you want to talk just quickly about that? Just to sort of frame it and what you- Yeah, it's almost as if we intended this the, this conversation to go in that direction, because actually the 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 motivation for the book is is to um, give a bit more insights into complex systems, and it's done complex systems from the perspective of climate change. Um, but there's an interaction with um, with uh, neuroscience in there. So um, the uh, when I when I stepped down from uh, VP and director at, at Baycrest. Um, and uh, did like a mini sabbatical. I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do and I was being pushed to write a book on complex systems um, from an academic perspective. And for life, I just could not get the energy to do it. It's like, I just, I, I, you know, the books exist right now. I do not want to write another sort of academic text on that. So yeah. I was hemming and hawing, hemming and hawing. And then um, I had a dream <laughs> um, uh, where me and Victor and Petra were at a conference somewhere in Asia. Uh, and we went for a run after the session was done. And we, we ended up, uh, and we actually were, were running in sort of like, you know, uh, army gear in some respects, like special ops gear. So we had like little guns in our backs and we ended up chasing aliens into a sewer. Um, and I woke up from this and I, you know, I, there was a very sort of vivid and elaborate narrative around the dream. And I woke up and I was like, I have to write this down. So I went through and wrote the scene out. Um, and um, the scene had sort of principles of complex systems like, you know, emergence and multi-scale architectures that were sort of inherent in that particular scene. Um, I wrote it down, sent it to Victor and Petra. They said, this is fantastic. And Petra said, this could be a book. And I went, Wait a second, you're right. So all of a sudden it's like I could I could do this. I could take this whole scenario and make it a, a science fiction novel about complex systems, about you know, aliens who are influencing um, our climate, um, about using brain computer interfaces to help uh, find these aliens and then help try and uh, come up with solutions by modeling yeah. um, interactions. And that's all throughout the book but it's done in sort of this sort of funny uh, narrative. And it is a side of me. And I, I used to do creative writing in, in high school. Like I think a lot of us probably did. Um, and I kind of, you know, I wouldn't say stifled it, but I kind of put it on the shelf and then it sort of reemerged. And I got, you know, the book was done in about a year um, and just got published uh, this, this month, I think actually. And then I've got other short stories that are not really neuroscience things, but there's, there is this creative aspect that I think is important. It's important for me. Um, it's, 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 it's as uh, soothing as a, a nice run, um, but I think it's an important complement to, to being a scientist to have those releases because it does um, help us, it changes our perspective. Um, and by changing our perspective in that moment, all of a sudden we see things in a different light. And you, know, you mentioned, and I said the same thing, like when, you, when you come back from a run, you're not the same person. And that's almost because you've all suffered for that period of time, blood flow changes, brain networks change for yeah. a period of time. Yeah. And you've got a different perspective and you feel fantastic. And that's exactly what happens when I write uh, fiction or when I play my guitar. Oh, that's, so. 
That's cool. So it's sort of like then I was just going to ask how you how you find time to do that. But in some ways, just like running, you make time, you you know, because it's pleasurable in itself. Uh, and, yeah. 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 Uh, my wife kind of, you know, she encourages it because she says, you're, you're miserable. Go for a run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. De- oh, definitely. I, 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 my wife does the same thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> she knows exactly when I haven't run. And yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And, and, uh, and, and just one last thing, uh, there was this, uh, uh, this, uh, it's, it's on your website, sort of the, the concept of, I think it was Petra's, of the virtual dream, where you actually hook people. Oh, yeah. What is that? Just uh, really quickly, uh, uh, that's another, looked fascinating. Yeah, that was an idea that actually came out of a, a colleague who was in my lab for a number of years, Natasha Kovacevic. Um, and she was um, primarily a programmer, which is also was, was an artist as well. Um, and she was uh, working on some of the early versions of the virtual brain with us and kind of, was kind of thinking, like, if I was to talk to my brain um, through a computer interface, what would it look like? And then so she started talking with Jessica Palmer, who's uh, a graphics design artist, um, actually also does games, who's now working with Petra. And then Jessica and, and Natasha started thinking about, can we build sort of an art experience where... Um, you use you know, a, a low-res EEG, in this case, it's the um, Interaxon headset, to, to drive uh, a game. And the game is actually you know, basically using spectral power, uh, but then using that to drive a series of animations that are sort of, uh, at that particular point, is actually different kind of scenarios that were happening and animations that were projected onto a big screen, like a dream, but it was a collective dream because we had... I think 20 participants hooked up at the same time. Oh, that's cool. Um, so it was a fantastic effort because it did two things. Um, one is, I mean, actually more than two, but I'll just think the two main things. One is it got people really engaged to think about, oh, this is cool. Um, and this is neuroscience. And two, it is neuroscience because we got actually a paper out of it. We looked at, you know, how can you learn and how fast do you learn? And what are the determinants of learning? We had like 500 people go through this display in one evening. So we yeah. had a very large sample size, um, you know, a good sample of men and women. We had like, some nice, um, you know, data telling us like, what are the determinants of how well people learn this? There's some different sex differences. Um, so it's, it's a nice way of uh, engaging the public, getting them interested in neuroscience, but also being able to do um, neuroscience at the same time. Yeah. That is so cool. I, I you can imagine. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm surprised it's already not. I mean, you have you already have the elements in terms of the the gaming software. You just need the uh, a good high fidelity uh, interface with with EEG that you could actually, you know, people could. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it could you could market this, uh, and and uh, certainly people. Yeah, there is you know certainly there's some biofeedback sort of yeah. uh, devices out there, but it just seems like it's something that having a visual display could be interesting yeah i mean the, so petra's group is working on that quite a bit and uh, if you you know go through petra's um, lab website there's a thing called brain modes that jessica has been developing that is an app um it's still there's a lot of um you know it still needs some sandpaper to get rid of some rough edges but it's working quite well um okay it's 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 fun cool cool that's great that's that's really really cool um yeah and how you would collapse the data and, and actually make it the most useful in terms of either feedback or just displays or and whatever is, is an right. interesting question. Um, yeah. Okay, finally, last last question uh, or last two questions. One, you're starting at uh, you know as of January first, you're you're actually moving. You've been at you you've been at Toronto so long, and 
you're starting a new position at Simon Fraser University directing uh, their Institute for Neuroscience and, and Neurotechnology. Uh, yeah. and that's in Vancouver. I, I guess it's, it looks like it's, it's right you know, in the suburb of Vancouver. Um, uh, so why, what motivated this and, and what, what's your plans? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah, and this is, it's, it, again, it's a nice segue from what we talked about earlier in the sense of, of inclusivity and, and um, expanding our focus. So um, um, SFU um, is, uh, has a philosophy of inclusivity and um, um, the, uh, they, they feel like they have to be part of the community. So they embrace the notion that um, they're uh, in the neighborhood, they're your neighbor. So it's like you can go to them for a cup of milk, for instance. If, if you <laughs> be. Um, um, and that perspective I thought was quite unique. I mean, and a lot of universities have that sort of in their mantra, but SFU seems to live that. Um, and when I first started talking with them about this, this position, I thought it was gonna be like another neuroscience thing. Um, but then as I started talking to the, you know, the, the people, the, the VPs, the deans, the uh, department chairs and the scientists. And then actually what really got me moving was talking to the students because they saw um, uh, their work at, at SFU as being transformative in the sense of actually taking their knowledge and making a difference. Um, so what I came up with, um, and we're still working on some of the details, is building an institute where the focus is to enable neuroscientists to do um, their work better. So providing them with the necessary support, like doing brain modeling, for instance, and give them like a, you know, a part-time RA to help with that. Um, bringing together um, the neuroscientists across the SFU campus, but also more broadly, to think about burning questions like social determinants of brain health, um, and then finding the most effective means to get their information into the hands of people who need it. And that could be through technology, that could be through um, dissemination and interactions. So it's a more participatory uh, uh, motion towards neuroscience. And what I liked about that, um, that vision resonated because they have pieces in place to do that already. SFU does this. Um, so, and doing that for brain, I think is a fantastic opportunity. And it's like, I have to do this. So, wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> that is really cool. That's really, I mean, they have all the technology there. It seems like it's, it's a, it's a really well-equipped center, but also at the same time, this philosophy. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, uh, that's, that's exciting and compelling because not many, there's not many places that, right. Like you said, in, in, embody that philosophy and, yeah. and uh, and I think it's important. Um, it's a, yeah, this is, that's, it's a great, uh, it's a great move, I think. And I'm looking forward. Yeah. Thank you. Looking it's a great to... running here too, Peter. So we've got some trails we can explore when you come visit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Whenever I go to Vancouver, I, I, I just, one of my best friends in my entire life was in uh, oh. uh, Stanley park. Uh, oh. it, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's this place, right. You know, we, we had one of our meetings there and I remember being up all night preparing the slides cause I lost my slides, whatever. I just slept the whole day, but then I just went for a run and it was like a three hour run. There's, there's enough places to stop if you need food or whatever. And I yeah, just yeah. kept running and, but I'm sure there's other places too. I mean, there's many, I, you know, Vancouver is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been fun to explore the trails uh, as I'm thinking about the next uh, evolution of virtual brain and, and so on. So. <laughs> yeah. There's or, my, or my next book, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's a it's a stunningly beautiful place. I yeah, I, I love it. Um, yeah, well, good luck. Good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and at the very end, so is there any parting words, any advice you, uh, you know, anything you wanted to add anything for advice for students or postdocs or um, perspectives? On yeah, it? I mean, I think the secret to my success, if you will, has been um, my collaborators and my colleagues. Um, so I, I am not, there's no way I could have done any of this stuff on my own. Um, and I think that's really important for students to realize is that um, it's okay to, to collaborate. It's okay to have a network. It's okay to ask for help. Um, and it's, it's, you co-mentor one another in doing that. And that's, that's I think, what's going to be critical for neuroscience going forward is to think about it as a team sport. Um, that's, that, is, that is great advice. And it's becoming more, right, it, it's even more essential as, as we have, you know, bring together different disciplines. And it's, it's, you know, that's the only way you can actually, in terms of making progress, I mean, you can't have all the skill sets. And so you really do need help. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's wonderful advice. And, and this has been a wonderful discussion. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming thank on. Thank you, Peter. All right. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you. So did I. So did I. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Anastasia Brovkin and Kevin Sitek.